0: Right now, we're studying the gospel of Matthew. If you'd open your Bible to Matthew chapter two, our text is gonna be Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. Open your Bible or navigate on your phone or your tablet. We uh, encourage you to use your electronic devices as long as they're on, uh, I like to call it set to stun, uh, so that uh, they don't go off during the service and distract people, causing me to make fun of you which I love to do, by the way, but I'd I'd rather not. The topic we're gonna find in this text, the Magi from the east follow an unusual star to find he who was born the King of the Jews. The title of our message, Celestial Light and Magi. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. We believe, Lord, that uh, you are here, as you said you would be, among the candlesticks Uh, And then in the book of the Revelation where you said that, Lord, you said the candlesticks were the church gathered together. Also in that book, you said, let the church hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our ears, spiritually speaking, would be open to receive from you. And Lord, just in every way, let us have a sweet time of uh, just focusing on he who was born King of the Jews, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ there are those here who don't know you Lord I pray that they would be drawn to you by your love and their need for forgiveness and for the Christians Lord for us who've walked with you for some time I pray that insight uh, and information would be given that is valuable that would cause us Lord to draw closer to you we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agree it, amen. I often hear Christians refer to worship as a lifestyle rather than an activity. It's a popular way of trying to heighten our awareness that God is worthy of our worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What does lifestyle worship look like? Well, perhaps our text in Matthew can show us. The wise men we are introduced to, the famous magi of the Christmas nativity, They say that they've come to worship and once they find Jesus, they fall before him and they do just that. After we see all that they sacrificed and endured, I think we will say that they definitely are an example of lifestyle worship. The Magi are not the only worshipers in this text. I would submit to you that the chief priests and scribes also practiced a lifestyle of worship. The scribes studied the word of God full time and interpreted it to the people. The priests made sacrifices in the temple for themselves and for the people, and all of them were busy trying to keep the law of Moses. Yet for all their worship, when the announcement was made to them that their king was born, they made no effort to discover him. For the Jews, worship had become a pastime. It was a huge part of their lives, but only as a religion as they went through the motions. For the Magi, worship was a pursuit. They relentlessly pursued God the way a person in love pursues his or her loved one. With these two examples in mind, I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, is worship your religious pastime? Or number two, is worship your romantic pursuit? Let's take a look first of all in verses one through eight at worship as a religious pastime. Mostly in Great Britain, but also around the world, there's mad interest in the pregnancy of Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, and the wife of Prince William. She's due in July, by the way. I know some of you are counting the days. Around 5 or 6 B.C., the king of kings was born. The date of his birth is suggested by the fact that we know King Herod will order the slaughter of all male children two years and under, but he himself is recorded as having died in 4 B.C. Apart from a few shepherds out in the fields tending their flocks, there was little interest in Jesus' birth among his own people. There was a small group of foreigners, however, who were captivated by his birth. They were fanatic about it, about him, and they pulled out all the stops to pursue him so they could worship him. They were the magi. And so in verse one, we read, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. We really don't know very much about these wise men from the East. This portion of scripture is our entire understanding of them. Our Christmas tradition that there were three of them is based entirely upon the fact that they brought three gifts. One Eastern tradition says there were 12 of them. We have no real information on how many of them there were. Occasionally, you will read their names. Since this is the only place in the Bible we see them, and since their names are not given, any attempt to name them is just a fiction. The translation wise men comes from the word magi. It was used of a priestly class of advisors in various cultures. Their technique was to pay particular attention to the stars. They gained an international reputation for astronomy and astrology. Astrology. Their use of astrology caused derivatives of the term magi to be applied to the occult in general and led to the English term magic. These guys, however, were not magicians in the sense we use the word today. They were advisors to kings and nobles, interpreters of the celestial heavens. We're not even sure where in the east they actually came from. Babylon is a good guess since we read of Magi being there in the book of Daniel, but they could have come from any number of countries in the east. We can speculate about how they knew about the Jewish Messiah. We know that Daniel, when he was a captive in Babylon, was put in charge of the Magi. We can safely assume that the Magi of Babylon, at least, were well-versed in all things Jewish, especially the coming of the Messiah. Other groups of dispersed Jews throughout the east would have made the coming of their Messiah known wherever they gathered. And there was a familiar prophecy in the book of Numbers that said, and I quote, there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter, meaning a king, shall rise out of Israel. It's Numbers twenty-four seventeen. While modern scholars argue this may not be referring to the star that guided the Magi to Jesus, if they had heard this prophecy from Daniel or other Jews of the dispersion, they would certainly have interpreted it that way. They would have been looking for a celestial sign, a star that accompanied the birth of the one who would wield the scepter in Israel as king. Daniel also received and undoubtedly shared the prophecy we know as the 70 weeks of Daniel, which revealed that the Messiah would come as Prince of Israel precisely 483 years after a Persian emperor gives a command to the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. And these guys were really good mathematicians and they could calculate that date. It would be easily possible for the Magi, as the promised date came near, to put all of these prophecies together and be watching for this sign to appear. We'll return to the Magi in a moment. Right now, we want to look at the other worshipers in this story, the Jews. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod wasn't a Jew. He was a descendant of Esau and was thus an Edomite He's also sometimes called an Idumean, which is another way of putting it. His ethnicity helps us to understand why he was troubled. The appearance of an Israelite in the true line of the kings of Israel claiming the throne would really upset the fragile political climate of the first century. And it would usurp Herod as king since he had no real right to the throne. The various nations east of Judah like Persia and Babylonia and Assyria, they were not really part of the Roman Empire at this time but rather part of a large and powerful Parthian Empire or Persian Empire which was a serious rival to Rome and had defeated several attempts by Roman legions including one led by Herod himself uh, to subjugate her. There's reason to believe that at this time, the Parthians were actually threatening Rome along nearby borders of the Roman Empire. The rest of Jerusalem would be troubled for at least two reasons. First, if the geopolitics I just went over are correct, they would think that these magi might be spies that are coming in advance of a full-blown invasion. Second, it's been said that all Jerusalem was troubled because Herod was a monster who would murder just about anyone There was no telling what he might do. It's a valid fear because we'll see later in this chapter, Herod will order the slaughter of all children under two years of age, seeking to kill the one who was born king of the Jews. And so there's a lot of reason for Herod to be troubled and for the people of Jerusalem to be troubled. Since the theme of these verses is worship, and since we are comparing lifestyles of worship, I'd suggest something further. The scribes and the priests for sure, but also most of the Jewish people had settled into their lives as a subjugated people who were content to think that someday their prince would come. Hearing that he might actually be on the scene was upsetting to the daily routine. I mean, if you were expecting a military Messiah who would overthrow Roman rule, obviously things were going to get pretty dicey. Life as you know it, was going to be turned upside down. We're talking revolution. And, and quite honestly, even though the Jews didn't like being subjugated, obviously no one does, there was a, they'd grown comfortable being subjugated and they were getting along with Rome and the Romans kind of left them alone. And so this would upset things. Now we in the church expect Jesus to return at any moment to resurrect and rapture the church, or do we? Are there things that we yet want to do or experience that would be interrupted by his coming for us to the point where we would feel troubled by it? Have we settled into a lifestyle that only gives lip service to his coming while we plan for a long, prosperous stay on the earth, only seldom interrupted by serving him when we find it convenient? That's the kind of comparison this text is demanding from us this morning to take a a hard look at our lives and to make sure that we are not like these Jews. Verse four, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. These were the men you would uh, describe as worshipers, at least in their activities. They observed the law, they observed the Sabbath, they observed all the feasts. They brought their sacrifices to the temple. They tithed and they gave beyond the tithe. On top of all that, they knew the word of God. The comparison we could draw is that a Christian can attend church, can serve in the church, can give to the work of the ministry. They can study the word of God, but still be more like these guys than they were the magi. This is not the lifestyle worship you want to emulate. This is religion and is lacking in relationship. You know, as Christians, you've probably used that term before. When talking to people about Christianity, you said Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that is 100% accurate. But even Christians who are in a real relationship with Jesus Christ can fall back into a kind of religious observance. At least the Christians in Ephesus could because when Jesus wrote to that church in the book of the Revelation, he said, man, you guys are really going for it. You're, you're, you know, you, you've got all these programs and you're, you're fighting false teaching and your doctrine is pure and all that. He goes, but you know what? You've left your first love. It's all kind of religious observance with no real relationship. So let's get back to having that first love relationship, that passionate pursuit of God. And so we want to understand that though we are the ones who say it's, it's a relationship, not a religion, religion is always pulling us back. We're always looking to fall back on things that make it a religion so that we can feel good about ourselves. Verse five, so they said to him, He'll be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The answer they gave is a combination of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and Second Samuel chapter 5 verse 2, and they all knew the answer. They didn't even have to Google it. One of my favorite things to do is I don't understand anymore. People ask questions, and then they try and argue with each other while I'm Googling what the answer is. And and in 10 seconds, you say, yeah, no, that's not true. Here's the truth right here, you know, because Wikipedia never lies. (laughs) But these guys, they just knew. Herod said, hey, where is the Messiah going to be born? Bam, Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. I'm surprised you don't know that, Herod. Herod. Now it's clear from the rest of the story that they did not join the Magi in their pursuit. Whether from fear of Herod or simply from apathy, they answered the question, then they went back to their daily routine. They may even have been a little proud of themselves knowing the scripture so well. They knew it really well backwards and forward, but it made no difference to them. These magi were announcing that the king of the Jews, the promised and prophesied Messiah, had been born. There's a hint in the story that they were puzzled as to why no one in Jerusalem seemed to know about it or once they did, care about it. Herod took their claim seriously deadly seriously, as we'll see as the chapter unfolds. But for now, in verse 7, it says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, Herod's an important Bible character. We're going to talk about him more when he orders the slaughter of the infants at the end of the chapter. For our thematic purposes today, he represents the non-believer at his best, or we might say the non-believer at his worst, trying to rid himself or herself of God in order to gain the world, but in the process lose their soul. Herod is, is, is a non-believer who doesn't wanna have anything to do with God, who wants to put God to death, as it were, so that they can uh, just get on with their life in the world without their conscience bothering them. Whenever you read these stories in the news about people who are trying to wipe out prayer or take Christian this down and do this or that, they're Herods. They say, hey, I want to kill God because I don't want to have to think that there's a God And so, you know, you're telling me about God, let's kill that and just have a secular life where I can gain the whole world if necessary. But we would say in the process, lose your soul. Now, the Jews had a lifestyle of worship, but it fell short because it was merely religion. They went through the motions, but there was no passion for God, certainly no pursuit of God. Take a bird's eye view of your lifestyle, only you can do it. Make sure you don't look like these guys in the way that you are pursuing God. Now, as we move on in verses 9 through 12, is, your, is worship, rather, your romantic pursuit? Back now to the Magi, knowing the time they were looking for the sign of the star. There's almost endless speculation surrounding the star. One thing to notice is that they never said it led them They saw it, they recognized it as the sign and they headed to Jerusalem, perhaps assuming the king of the Jews would be born in the spiritual heart of Israel. Was it a real star? Was it a convergence of planets as some say? Was it a comet? I have come to think of it as a miraculous phenomena rather than a natural event like a comet or an alignment of planets or any such thing. Mostly for this reason, at the end of their journey, it leads the Magi to a particular house in Bethlehem, apparently hanging low right above it, kind of like a sign. Beep. You know, one of those neon signs. Beep. Beep. Now, there are really solid scholars who argue that it was a star, that it was a convergent of planets, that it was this, that, or the other things. I don't have any problem with that. The text doesn't depend on what it was. Uh, but if you're thinking it through... My guess is that it was a miraculous phenomena. The star may have been what we call the Shekinah of God. In the Old Testament, you read of God's Shekinah or God's glory leading the children of Israel through the wilderness as a visible pillar of fire or as a cloud. If you've been a Christian for a while and you read through the Exodus and then all of a sudden you realize... God was over them as a pillar of fire uh, or as a cloud and when that pillar would move, then they would would quit camping and they would move and follow it and so they were following this literal presence of God and so this could be what it is but it it doesn't really matter in the long run. Whatever it was, these guys had been anticipating it. They were looking for it, for a sign. Do you remember the Carly Simon song, Anticipation? How many remember that? Wow, I'm so old. Ha, maybe a rap group has redone it and you, you know it as, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, <laughs> it was also uh, the theme song for a famous ketchup commercial. But anyway, uh, remember the ketchup commercial? <laughs> Anticipation, because the ketchup is. YouTube will tell you all you need to know about all of this The song relates to her state of mind as she waits to go on a date with Cat Stevens. How many of you remember Cat Stevens? Too bad for Carly Simon because Cat Stevens became Yusuf Islam and converted to Islam in 1977. So for all I know, she's still waiting for that date. But still, anticipation is a solid romantic activity. That's the point. These guys were anticipating a sign. It was, it's like when you're waiting to go on a date with somebody that you're really excited about and you're waiting for that knock on the door. They're gonna be early, they're gonna be late, they're gonna be on time, and, and you're excited about it. These guys were excited. They'd probably calculated that the time was getting close for the Messiah to be born, and they had this prophecy perhaps from Numbers 24, and they were thinking, what is the sign going to be? We have to be looking all the time. Wherever these magi came from, it was at least a thousand miles away. During Bible times, people could travel on foot up to 15 miles a day. Caravans led by donkeys could travel about 20 miles a day, as could camel caravans. A person riding a fast camel could travel an astonishing 70 miles in a day. But I don't know how many consecutive days your camel could hold up under that strain. I mean, I don't know, camels, maybe they you know rejuvenate overnight or something but I don't know that you can just ride them 70 miles a day for day after day the truth is they may have been traveling on horseback it again ruins our Christmas nativities but the idea they came on camels that's our own tradition horses were more common in those days especially in the east as a mode of transportation especially long distance transportation Now, these guys traveled at least a month, if not more, at a time when travel was difficult and dangerous. They literally took their lives in their hands going on a journey like this, or we might say they put their lives in God's hands, but they determined that they had to go. Compare them to the Jews who wouldn't travel a safe, well-used, maintained road a mere six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so these Magi show up Looking the worse for wear, I'm sure, as travelers, having traveled a 1,000 miles on some beast of burden, wondering where the king of the Jews is, and, and they find out he's going to be born in Bethlehem, they head out to Bethlehem while all the Jews decide that six miles is a little bit too far for them, that they, they really you know, have to plan for it. Christian recording artist and evangelist Keith Green had a line in one of his songs reminiscent of this, one of my favorite lines. We use it to joke with each other all the time. He said, Jesus rose from the dead, and you, you can't get out of bed? It's a rebuke to people who don't go to church. So you guys are safe this morning. See, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? So think of somebody that's not here this morning and give them a call and just say, hey, Crazy title this morning, you, uh, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and you can't get out of bed, but it's true, you know, sometimes it's like, oh man, church, church again, wow, I'm so tired, I, and I'd have to, I'd have to comb my hair, I'd have to get in the car and drive, you know, like two or three miles to church. And all that, and, and uh, these guys—they came a thousand miles, maybe on a donkey, on a camel, on a horse, maybe on foot. Who knows? And and, and the Jewish people, who should have been really excited, they said, "Ah, oh, six miles! Wow, that's like us when we like—I don't want to go to Visalia. I had to go all the way to—why Co- can't there be a Costco in Anford? Yeah, you know, because I to drive all the way to Visalia to go to Costco. Wow." Uh, verse nine. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Contrary to our tradition, the Magi did not arrive on the night Jesus was born, so you need to edit your nativity this coming Christmas. He was already a young child when they presented their gifts. He was as old as two because that's the oldest age that Herod estimates he could have been when he orders the slaughter of all the male children. Now, these guys implicitly believed God's word. They were told that God's word said the king would be born in Bethlehem, so to Bethlehem they set off. How would they find the house or the child? We know, but they didn't. They went anyway, believing God would show them the next step when they got there. When they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, the way this read seems to infer that this star wasn't visible the whole time, but now it was, and it was leading them to a particular house in Bethlehem. One secret, you would say, to a lifestyle of worship is to act upon what you know rather than wait for everything to be revealed. The mystery heightens the romance for those who are in love with each other. And this is one of the reasons why God doesn't tell you everything. He, he, he's always pulling an Abraham on you. He's saying, Abraham, get out of the land, and I'll show you a promised land. Okay, where is it? I want to put it into my mapping, you know, figure out the best route. God says, yeah, just start walking there. Where? Just start walking, and I will show you. And that's the Christian life. You better get used to it. God says, just walk with me. Where? Take, a, take the first day. You probably know the first step. There's a bunch of, I gave you a bunch of scriptures to look at and to memorize and, you know, do the things that you know to do and I will lead you the rest of the way. I want to know where I'm going. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'll I, I tell you where you're eventually going. You're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus. You're going to be raised in a glorified body or raptured in a glorified body. So, but in the meantime, just take one step at a time. I don't know if I like that. Well, then we're not going to get very far because I'm not telling you where you're going. And some of us, our Christian life is a little bit stunted because we're, we don't understand this romantic aspect, this mysterious aspect of God where he's not telling us everything. And he's, he's not going to move off of that. He's not going to do for you what he wouldn't do for Abraham and David and all of the patriarchs that came before us. Verse 11. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi fell down and worshiped. They did this to a toddler in a small house in an obscure town among foreigners who were not themselves acknowledging that their king had been born at a time when Jesus hadn't accomplished anything. Now, Jesus has done a whole lot since then, but he has yet to finish the redemption of creation. And in the meantime, we find ourselves worshipers of someone others think of as powerless to stop the evil in this world, or worse, as a person responsible for the evil. A lifestyle of worship looks beyond circumstances to the coming of the Lord to rule as king. The Magi believed past the toddler. We believe past the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to his return to make all things right. Many different theories of the meaning and symbolism of the gifts have been suggested. While gold is fairly obviously explained, frankincense and particularly myrrh are much more obscure. The theories break down into two groups. One is that they're just ordinary gifts that you would give to a king. The other is the spiritual uh, significance of the gifts that gold is a symbol of kingship on earth, frankincense, an incense would be a symbol of deity and myrrh, an embalming oil, a symbol of death and that works for me. Whatever else they symbolized, they were both thoughtful and costly. The magi put some real thought into their gifts. Are you a thoughtful giver? Do you put real thought into your gifts? Some of us are better at being thoughtful than others. I'm reminded of a scene in the modern version of Father of the Bride where the groom gives his fiancee a blender before they get married as a wedding gift. If you've seen the movie, you know that it almost ruins their wedding because she sees it as a not very thoughtful gift. And I would suggest, gentlemen, that you don't give blenders before you're married. Afterwards, go for it. But anyway... God needs nothing from us, but he allows us the romance of giving. But our gifts, they they need to be thoughtful. They need to be from the heart if we are to practice a lifestyle of worship. And they need to be costly. Now, I know some of you are gonna object to this, but love isn't about being practical. It's about being generous and giving costly, you might say even extravagant gifts. We should really stop and read the famous Christmas story, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. How many of you are familiar with that story? We don't have time to read it, so I'm gonna summarize it for you. I figure if you haven't read it by now, you're not going to, so I'm gonna ruin it for you. So uh, if you don't wanna hear how this story goes, plug your ears right now. Look at one of those YouTube videos I mentioned earlier. Or, uh, but here's the story. Della and Jim Young, the main characters, they're a newly married couple with very little money, turn of the century America. Jim has suffered a 30% pay cut, he works for the state, and the two must scrimp for everything. On the day before Christmas, Della counts the money she has painstakingly saved for months. She's dismayed to find she has less than $2. Again, remember, turn of the century. Hardly enough to buy anything at all. After a good long cry, Della determines to find a way to buy Jim the present that he deserves. Jim and Della have two possessions of which they are both proud. One is Jim's gold watch, which has been handed down from his grandfather. The other is Della's long hair. It's lustrous and shining. It falls past her knees. Before she can lose her nerve, Della races out of their apartment to a wig maker to whom she sells her hair for $20. With the money in her hand, Della goes to the stores to try to find something worthy of Jim. At last, she finds a beautiful fob for Jim's prize watch. Meanwhile, and unknown to Della, Jim has sold his beautiful gold watch to buy her gift. Her gift is a set of beautiful combs for her lovely hair. Now, the story does a good job of putting costly gifts into perspective. It wasn't the watch fob itself or the combs that were the gifts. It was the surrender of that which was dearest to each in order to give to the other. And in the end, they both received the experience of a costly gift. These were the best gifts that they could receive. In the Gospels, a woman will break a costly alabaster jar of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. You can read about it in Mark 13. The disciples rebuke her, saying it could have been sold for a year's wages to support the poor. True, but Jesus received it as an act of worship, of costly, extravagant worship. Verse 12, then being divinely uh, warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Remember, they were only six miles away from Herod. He wasn't a guy you wanted to double cross. These magi were not ninjas or Jedi. There's no indication they traveled with any security. God would have to be their refuge and their shield once Herod understood they were not coming back. They were totally on their own, a thousand miles from home, standing out like sore thumbs and disobeying the local authority. Off they went another way, undoubtedly a longer, more arduous way home. And so their troubles, from one point of view, were just beginning. Seeing Jesus, you know, it wasn't well. Man, now we've we've checked that off of our ancient bucket list, and now we can go home. I mean, these guys continued to live a lifestyle of worship. Or after this was their afterglow to try and figure out how to get home another way. You ever have to take a detour? I'm I'm not a big detour guy. Detours are never clearly marked. Have you noticed that? It says, detour, go over here. Yeah, where? Every time I've taken a detour, I've ended up in Timbuktu. If I ever see a detour sign, I just turn around and go home. At least I know how to get home. And so these guys, they, you know, there weren't that many roads that were easily traveled. You know, it wasn't like they could take the five or the 58 to get to Southern California. I mean, you know, to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was a, it was quite a chore. A.W. Tozer once said, many Christians are satisfied with their destination, but they neglect the journey. That's what we're talking about today. In the end, maybe the thing we get most from the Magi is that they did not neglect the journey. They left the comforts of home, even country, to pursue God, taking one step of faith at a time. They gave of their time, obviously, of all their talents and all their treasures, sacrificially and extravagantly. Encountering Jesus wasn't the end of the road. It put them at greater risk than ever, but I'm certain they were not disappointed in any way. In your heart of hearts, after all is said and done, you want to be like them, do you not? Of course you do. Your heart is strangely excited to be like them. Then don't neglect the journey. Keep romance alive in your relationship with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together.